You're listening to the Wild Voices Project, and today I'm speaking to Johnny Rankin, who describes himself as a birdwatcher, but I'll leave him to tell you about all the other amazing things that he does. And this weekend, the 4th and the 5th of February 2017, he is setting off for Dove Step 3, planning to trek 700 kilometres across Spain in order to raise money for turtle doves. So where I always start is by asking people um, whether or not nature, wildlife was something that was important to them growing up. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't want to say I was indoctrinated, but um, <laughs> it was something that both my grandfather and my father um, instilled in me from a very early age. Right. So my grandfather was, uh, you know, a real, uh, you know, old school, proper naturalist. Um, across all all disciplines, you just had a, a healthy interest in all of it, yeah, and indulged that, especially in retirement. My dad was a warden on on nature reserves, um, various nature reserves, and and took various uh, PhD um, commissions, if that's the word. Yeah, basically, um, you know, scientific um, things he did uh, until he got my mum pregnant with me, and then had to take some responsibility in life. <laughs> And got a proper job, but yeah, you know, obviously from being a warden and from the scientific research that kept kept up uh, with the bird watching, and uh, that's really how I got into this, into all this. Yeah. So which um, which nature reserves was he warden on? Where where was this? I think I'm right in saying um, Rockcliffe Marsh was one that he was on, um, studying waders, and um, his PhD was on something to do with. I think I can't remember the correct, the correct word. It sounds like phragmites or phlegmites. Phragmites, yeah. And that's a plant. This is that a, is a plant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that wasn't um, his. It sounds like that, but it's basically um, like almost a fungus on wader eggs. Oh right, sorry. Okay. Um, that was what he's, one of the things he studied. Another thing was to do with dung beetles. But yeah, various um, yeah PhD commissions and stuff like that. Yeah. And lived in uh, you know caravans, Rockcliffe marshes. One one near um, Edinburgh, another section of habitat. I really should have listened to my father better to give you a better uh, indication of what he did. Yeah. <laughs> and which which bit of the country is this in? Is this where you grew up? So that was that's in uh, you know the borders north, uh, north. I grew up in Durham, County Durham. <laughs> right, I wondered if you might have done. My girlfriend was born in Gateshead and her favourite okay. city is Durham and she well, thinks Northumberland, she thinks the sun shines out of Northumberland, so she does. would like you. It does, yeah, <laughs> absolutely, you know. Um, north of England, you know, I miss it terribly, I miss the terrain, I miss the people, I miss the birds, I miss it all, absolutely wonderful. Yeah. Uh, I'm really happy in Suffolk, um, maybe we get onto that later, but, you know, living in Suffolk has opened... Thinking about that actually this morning when I was walking, just East Anglia in general for someone who loves wildlife and in particular birds opened so many doors. Yeah. The fact that I walked, it took me an hour and a half, whatever it took, but I walked up a river valley uh, onto like a really nice nature reserve, you know, met, met some great people. And um, I'm not saying that couldn't happen in Durham, you know, sure it could. But uh, it's just, it's a very well-networked place with the RSPB reserves, the lodge mm. one side, you know, the flagship RSPB reserve and me on the other, um, plus all the wildlife trusts, plus everything, you know, plus accessibility to London, 
It really is a great part of the world to live in. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. But it's not as good as the northeast. <laughs> well, I grew up in Worcestershire, which is not, you know, particularly kind of up there with the top birding counties. And then the first time I came to Suffolk, the first time I visited, and then when I moved here in 2009. Yeah just kind of blew my mind yeah similar exactly like you say so have you got any um because <laughs> my girlfriend will uh will kill me if i don't ask about it so have you got any like particularly special memories of trips or birding up in the northeast favorite place and i still well two favorite places and i still visit them when i go back very locally Herworth burn reservoir right so it's halfway between basically mum's house and hartlepool it's just an inland uh reservoir I've seen some great stuff, you know, even in the last sort of five, ten years. Um, you know, like wild geese in with the, with the flocks there, white fronts, beans, um, scorp, a great northern diver, smew, that sort of thing. It's really cool, high quality birds. Um, Waxwing as well, it's like an old railway line. Yeah. And um, sort of New Year's, I think it was probably back in 09, 010. Literally, Waxwing's like coming in off and then on the, on the railway side there. But uh, you also get willow tit there. You know, willow tit's quite a common place, normal bird to get. Um, up there, at least, whereas it's, it's gone from Suffolk, I'd, I'd say. Yeah. Um, I th- there might be a few lingering pairs which basically retreated to Norfolk and then just a bird we've lost. Yeah. So it's always good to see them. Cow Green Reservoir's the other one. So Cow Green Reservoir, which is, well, it's Teesdale. That's, that's really cool, really good. See, I mean, you've got Langdon Beck, you've got the black, gra- black grouse, black cock, you know, real, that's a pretty iconic northeastern bird. And then, yeah, you can have a walk around um, Cow Green down Cauldron Spout, I think. Mm-hmm. It's just good terrain, beautiful surrounds. Last time I was there, a marsh harrier actually flew over. Uh, so, marsh harrier up on, up on the uplands, flew you know, straight out of County Durham into Cumbria. Brilliant. Yeah, I love it. And then all your waders and more expected stuff up there. Yeah. Yeah, it's brilliant. I miss it. miss it terribly. But uh, the girlfriend, her name's Fee, probably call her by her name. Fee doesn't uh, wish to move. You know, she moved down here with me and we're happy and settled. There's no reason to move other than, you know, I like things, all things northern. I feel most at home when I'm in Norway, in the Arctic Circle. Right. But that's another stepping stone too far. Um, do you get back up to the northeast much? Yeah, a few times a year. So I was there a uh, week before Christmas, uh, just basically seeing family and friends um, because of the time commitments I have for, you know, set aside for Dovestep. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I was stayed local for Christmas this year. Uh, but yeah, always good. Good grounding, just a great feeling. It might sound excessive, but uh, the light's different up there. Mm-hmm. The sense of space is different up there. The burden's different, obviously. But, you know, it just... It, for me, it's it's soul food. You know, go back. I see my dippers on the weir, the river weir. I um, I can get to see the black grouse. It's just real sort of uh, real soul food, and I feel a real connect or a real reconnect when I get up there. So I thoroughly enjoy it. Yeah, um, I was up in Scotland last week. Oh yeah, and that stretch of train line when you go yeah. past the Northumbrian coast yeah. and past Berwick upon Tweed is just I think the most beautiful stretch of train line in in this country certainly that yeah. I've been on anyway it's very cool very cool fond memories are um, did a volunteer stint at Lockinge uh, RSPB this would be clean 10-11 years ago now and uh, 
came back from the it must have been from Newton Moor or somewhere like that the station um, yeah and it was at times where you started smoking carriages so I got on at like 7am inadvertently in the smoking carriage and the uh, you know the drinks trolley comes down and they're like oh, have a cup of tea please and then everyone else is getting like ciders and beers and so by the time we're going past that very iconic you know very pleasant section of coastline most of my you know carriage mates um people were just absolutely bladdered and the air was thick <laughs> with cigarettes but you know that that wouldn't happen anymore no yeah <laughs> Well, judging from my trip last week, people do still get a bit bladdered, but not the smoking. Yeah. yeah I can't decide. I, 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 I'm a little nostalgic about that. Yeah. But uh, I don't smoke at the moment anymore. Um, and what, just an interesting little route to follow in this conversation, what took, what's taken you to Norway in the past? First time I went was 2013, and that was in the early days of uh, Gullfest. It was probably the second ever, you know, the Gulf Fest that Tormod made. Right. Um, For people who don't know what that is, could you say a little bit about it? Basically, there's this madcap chap who lives up on uh, the Varanga Peninsula on an off-isle that's connected by road um, called Vardo. And this is a guy, like a little Norwegian. He's not little. I know you're not that little, Tormod. But like a relatively <laughs> small chap called Tormod Amundsen. And um, he's just super enthusiastic about all things Arctic. He moved his family up to this, you know, into, well into the Arctic Circle. And basically, you know, he's, he's trying to... I mean, he's putting on the map as a burn location. It's a wonderful burn location. But he just drew together people from basically, um, you know, the natural world. So, you know, I, I had the great pleasure of going on that first trip with, for example, the late Martin Garner. That was a very cool experience, you know, to be in uh, you know, close proximity with him. We had, a, we had a good relationship, you know, we are on the face of it so different. Mm. Um, but, you know, he, he was a great sport, great sense of humour. I loved winding him up. I loved spending time with him. Um, we also had, you know, like Darren Woodhead and uh, the Lewington brother who paints birds. Oh, yes. Ian. Yes. Ian Lewington, Ian who's also a fellow yeah. uh, black metal fan. So we had a bit of commonality. There's another couple of Norwegians there that loved, uh, you know, black metal. So it was, it was a very cool trip. Is that that's a reasonably big metal scene in Norway, right? I think so. Yeah. yeah. You know, it spawned some of the best. For example, one of my favourites, Dark Throne. They're very, very Norwegian. Yeah, very cool. But uh, anyway, so that was that was a seismic trip. That 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 first trip to Nor- Norway, just total. Yeah, totally blew my mind. Loved it. Loved the place. So that was experiencing like the Tiger Forest and then basically the, the inhabited Isle of Vardo and, the, and then a further out off Isle of Hanoia, which is basically just a bird cliff. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. You know, even though we were there really early, I'd say February, really early, like midwinter, maybe it was into March, I don't know, early in the year, there were still birds on the cliff, you know, like congregating. Brilliant. You know, Brunnick's Gillymark, commonplace, Little Orc, commonplace. Um... Yeah, Stella's Ida in the harbour outside the hotel, your white-winged gulls, just a very, very cool place. Um, I should say that that was like a novel experience, but the place in Norway that I felt really at home was when I went back this time, actually this exact time last year, we were back. So instead of being on the northeast, uh, on the northwest, a um, place called Senja. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely awesome. So really cool, like uh, seawood, um, fjords 
full of orca and humpback. We saw <laughs> fin whale, nice. you know, just off, just out to sea. A white bill diver. Right. Just a really, really cool experience. Gordon, Gordon Eagle over the um, accommodation, as well as you know, commonplace white-tailed seagull. You know, at one point I think we had something like at least four, maybe six white-tailed seagulls in the air at once. But it was just the fact that you've got the fjords and then you've got the forest and the mountains around you. Uh, I don't think I've ever felt just so calm and happy in myself as, as uh, yeah, that visit to Norway. Wonderful. Is, is that because it feels quite wild? It's quite... because you are superbly humbled and there's an, you, in it, just an, you cannot escape nature. You know, you, you, here you can masquerade and you can, um, you know, be Billy Big Balls, be whoever you want to be. But the second you try that over there, you know, it's minus goodness knows what, it, it's wild. You know, it, it, it will take you down a peg and then there'll be plenty to eat the, the flesh from your bones. Yeah. <laughs> you like that feeling? Oh, it's wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. Brilliant. So Goal Fest, this might be a stupid question. Yeah. Was about goals. Yeah. Or was about more than that? Well, I think I'm right in saying that gold, G-U-L-L, might be the um, Norwegian for gold. So effectively, it was um, the very best of the Arctic. Right, okay. With a, uh, obviously, a bent, you know, gold bent. There was people there that had, that were ringing uh, the gulls in the harbour. And there's a potential for, you know, there'd been like glaucous wing gull in that harbour before. Big congregations with a fish key of gulls. But for me personally, you know, that was really an aside. You know, I was there for the, we saw some of our first orca off Hanoya. I was there for the experience of the orcs and in particular the sea duck, you know, huge, absolutely vast rafts of King Ida. Uh, and, you know, and our Ida as well. I mean, yeah. Vast, huge, t- tens of thousands. It's absolutely wonderful. And, and that was the experience that, that I took away from it. Whereas other people, you know, maybe they, they went down the gull rabbit hall and... They were enjoying, you know, that close to experience of, of goals and ringing them. Mm. And it's, it's diverse. You know, if you just simply want to go for a walk on the peninsula and, and just feel how cold it was and feel that, you know, that Arctic, catabatic wind, you could do that. We did that. It's brilliant. Mm. You know, whatever you wish to take from it, I think. I, I don't know if it's still going on, uh, Gold Fest. I think it happened last year. But, uh, you know, if you're able to... And even if it's not, if you're able to get up to Varanga in midwinter, very, very cool. As was Senya this last year. You know, the sun came up at 11.51 and went down at 11.51. So you had, you know, various level of, of like daylight, like a hue yeah. either side through different colours. It's just an amazing light, you know, wonderful light. And even when it's pitch black, you could still hear whales blowing in the fjord outside. It's just absolutely superb, wonderful. Um, I think for me, one of the things about Suffolk that struck me as well was the light, was like the openness of the skies. Um, and, you know, just how different it is from somewhere like, um, somewhere like Worcestershire, for example, where there's, you know, there's lots of architecture, it's quite built up, it's a lot more of a hilly landscape. But just in Suffolk, you've just got huge, it's so flat, you just get huge open skies. And that for me also changes the quality of the light. Um, so what was it that brought you to Suffolk? Studying, work, or...? It was work. I, yeah. I graduated and basically straight... I think I graduated in, say, the June. And the last week of the September, this would be t- 2006, I came and worked for a consultancy, basically, as a, 
as an EIA consultant doing environmental, environmental impact assessments for renewable energy projects. So that's what brought me down. At the time I was riding a lot of BMX. Um, you know, that was really my primary activity and, and pursuit. But such was the, the place I worked in the Gippen Valley uh, and the proximity reserves like Lackford Lakes. And just seeing things that I wasn't used to seeing. I came from Sheffield. You know, things like green woodpecker, which I'm sure you get up there, but they're, they're just, you know, they're readily available on the lawn almost here. And it was just little things like that, that stepping stones that took me to uh, eventually when I got a car, you know, get to Minsmere and, you know, and that, that's when the trouble started. And then you're following with the wrong crowd and you start <laughs> going on Twitches and goodness knows what else. So, yeah, it all, it all escalated from the move to Suffolk, really. Um, so what have been some of your best Suffolk birding highlights so far? So... Working out of the Gippen Valley for the length of time I did, those, that, that nine years, there was a necessity, you know, I had to be there for work, but circumstance was that I could do an hour's walk before and during uh, office hours. And uh, doing that, I found, uh, you know, a ferruginous duck on Needham Lake. I had a flyover white stork. You know, really just uh, high quality birds in an almost a work environment. Uh, and, and just enjoying uh, year listing and having a local patch, which, uh, you know, in that case, was orientated around my place of employment. It was just, that was really rewarding. Um, and I, f- I found good stuff elsewhere as well. Um, perhaps most notably the Pacific Swift down at Trimley, uh, Trimley Marshes. Mm. But uh, that was great. Um, I'll be honest with you, my girlfriend was working in Ipswich at the time. Um, so I just went over with her and, and took the dog down the estuary and it was just a, a walk out that coincided with finding that. More rewarding was finding, for example, parrot crossbills in the forest here, because there was um, an influx and I thought, you know, there's every chance of them being here. So I slogged and kept revisiting, uh, you know, crossbill hotspots. Yeah. Had my suspicion, I was like, I'm sure there's, there's different birds there. And eventually, yeah, pinned them down with a good friend of mine, uh, Lee Gregory. And that was a much more rewarding, earned process, if you like. Yeah. Um, and that was the same year as the Swift. I found a load of good birds that year. Uh, my friend uh, Malcolm Fairley, who I do a lot of bird watching with, we found a uh, Savvy's Warbler at Minsmere that year. Oh, yes. And so this, that was, what was, was it 2010 or 11 I or something? Can't, no, it was later than that. Later than that. Can't quite oh, remember. Yeah. Interestingly, um, the, the next person to, to hear the Savvy's Warbler after we found it was Tormod. <laughs> You know, you just happen to be visiting from Norway. Yeah. Unbelievable. You know, global village. Well, it's still not that... I mean, it's a big community community now compared to what it was in, say, the 50s or 60s. But there's still, you know... You still rock up at things and see people, don't you? Yeah, yeah. Um, so what is it um, that you like about Suffolk compared to, say, the North East? Um, well, it's not as good as the North East. But, but <laughs> since, since I'm here, I may as well make the most of it. Uh, I, I don't like the middle bit. Um, so I love Suffolk Breckland. Um, I suppose the Gippin Valley, I guess that's mid-Suffolk's, you know, enjoyable. Really, I was there out of necessity. But the coastal belt, you know, that Suffolk coastal belt, that is wonderful. Mm-hmm. I love the, uh, the Felixstowe Peninsula. You know, it, it, it's a burden hotspot, but you can spend almost all day out. Um, or, you know, for example, on the, um, the Deben and the Oral Estuaries. 
you know you cut, cut across that peninsula you probably won't see many other people you've got a lot of birds to yourself yeah really high quality really good rewarding birding but then after that you know, you've got all the the Suffolk sandlings all the way up and then obviously you know you've got the, the big hot spots like Minsmere and, and what's not to like wonderful yeah absolutely wonderful yeah different different pace of birding to say Norfolk as well I enjoy Norfolk birding and you know doing like the uh, the North Norfolk coast but there seems to be a a slightly more relaxed uh, feeling in Suffolk, more opportunity to find your own birds, accepting that it is intensifying. You know, my loved reserves like Lackford and, and Minsmere in particular, they're both getting a lot more visitor friendly, mm. which um, just means I've got to be even more antisocial than I was and uh, get there earlier and, and later and, and avoid the crowds. That's fine. Yeah, it's no problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think um, when I lived down in Snape and now also living up in Pakefield in Lowestoft. It's actually nice having those areas which are really under birdies. Lowestoft has a reasonable birding community, but Snape in particular was just really underwatched and it was just nice having those areas which were a bit kind of, you know, you can walk around and not see another birder, but still look for stuff and find stuff, which was, you know, really rewarding. Yeah, yeah and that's a great part of the coast up, uh, up at Lowestoft, Pakefield area every opportunity to find literally a, a county first up there and yeah. certainly a good certainly a good year bird well I was looking back through the archives of what Lowestoft has had over the decades it's had some pretty amazing birds it's a bit, it's a bit much it's a bit excessive yeah <laughs> um, what could you say a little bit about the importance to you or what it means to you to work a local patch so we were just out at Lackford Lakes this morning which is part of your local patch or not really you wouldn't no, say no um, so yeah, I, you know, I love, I find local patching, local birding really rewarding. I had for the nine years I worked over in uh, Needham Market in the Gippin Valley, you know, that was a, a patch that I worked in each, each working day, um, you know, once or twice a day. And that, that experience just really coinciding with my expanding my bird watching. So as it happened, I did have BMX jumps there as well. But that was in tangent with my uh, bird watching really just just growing exponentially, and uh, it was just such a it was such a rewarding feeling that, on the face of it, no one's going to go bird watching need a market. You know, no one's going to say to their partner, "Let's go down need a market and uh, you know spend two hours walking around." But through circumstance, through being there, you just get the the ebb and flow of the birding year, or almost heightened. Um, you will really relish seeing your first uh, thrushes of the autumn. You'll, you know, you'll be delighted seeing your first uh, spring migrants mm. because you're looking at it in that sort of that geolocated area. And it's, everything's almost your bird and your find, and it's just really rewarding. Um, here, I have sort of over the last eighteen months established something of a local patch you know it's entered into the patchwork challenge but it's the primary aim is really that i need to move you know i need to be on my feet i need to elevate my heart rate i need to train for dubstep three i don't own a car so i've just got a patch that basically takes in a triangle due north and then fans out to the east mm. and it includes a river valley and the few bits of bird interest which comprises a sewage works and uh, some pig fields and a farm reservoir so this is not 
again, no one's going to say, oh, let's go and bird the pig fields. Well, some people do. People who look at gulls. But, um, <laughs> yeah. So, again, it's not the most salubrious patch, but it's really rewarding. You know, if I find a bird on this patch, in all likelihood, no one else is going to you know, beat me to it because no one else is daft enough to look. Yeah. But it just gives you a nice focus. So I had a little owl this morning. Um, you, you had like a flyover widgeon uh, last weekend. It's a good bird, you know, that could easily evade you all year. Yeah. Whereas you go to somewhere like Lackford and you expect them. So I don't know, it's just adding a bit more uh, value and experience, if you like. I don't know, I find it really enriching. Yeah, I agree. I think I feel the same, like with the little stretch of beach that's right on our front doorstep within 30 seconds of the front door you know I'm starting to build up my list there I've only moved there sort of four months ago but you know I had a fly over goose under you know I know that I'm the only person who saw that yeah. you know pink footed geese flying over the garden again I'm the, probably the only person who saw those fly past and you know over the months you start to build up this thing where it's like you say it's challenging because you're kind of on your own but you know that if you see something you're likely to be the first one to see it which is really really rewarding um, it's it's free you know mm. I love it it's free it's there free all entertainment you, yeah all you've got to do is just get out your front door and yeah cool stuff will happen um, so I wanted to ask with whether it's you know your BMXing or your interest in kind of I suppose your interest in heavy metal music or in particular your walking and your running for Dovestep, which we'll come on, come on to in a moment, there seems to be kind of, you know, a theme of movement and energy. You know, for Dovestep, if you wanted to raise money, you could have chosen to, the, you know, be sponsored to do almost anything, but you've picked moving and moving in quite a serious way. What is it that's important to you about movement? That That is really interesting. I've never really had it put to me in that way before. Um, yeah, I guess... It's, it, Kinetic activities, heavy metal's pretty kinetic, you know, um, yeah, head banging, just, yeah, general destruction, all that <laughs> sort of thing. So, yeah, I, I don't know, I've never really looked into it or thought about it in that way, but uh, I, I'm 33 now, and a lot of years of heavy metal living and the BMX living, that was quite self-destructive, um, at times very self-destructive. I'm not suggesting that, you know, kids don't do it. I'm saying do it, you know, have the time of your life. Uh, I went on BMX tours around, around France with really good friends, numerous heavy metal shows. I absolutely loved it and I'd recommend it to anyone. I am now at a stage in my life whereby it does take a little bit longer to recover from those injuries. The hangovers do last a bit longer. Yeah. So I don't know whether I'm just maturing, but literally in the lifetime of dubstep, Endurance has become a real a real focus and something I take a lot of enjoyment from. And I think there's, a, there's an important point there. So every time we've raised money for um, the RSPB and specifically Operation Turtle Dove, every time we made sure that the task at hand was something we had no certainty we could do. Right down to the initial efforts, you know, we did really quite a bog standard normal thing, which, um, <clears throat> you know, people's grandmothers do every weekend. So we did a half marathon. Mm -hmm. You've got to remember, this isn't like couch to 5K. This is like heavy metal living 
to a half marathon. So it might seem trivial and it seems trivial to me looking back, but actually at the time that was asking everything of me and it started the process of applying myself, mm. really applying myself to achieve something that was at the point at which I decided to do it completely out of my grasp. Now I would say that the year after that half marathon we did the first dubstep journey, I was still extremely naive, extremely naive. And obviously as a result, we suffered a lot in walking 300 miles in 13 days. But again, that was the equivalent of couch to 5K, but it was couch to 300 mile walk in 13 days. So I think the thing that attracts me to the movement is stretching yourself physically and mentally and just, just been wholly accountable. I'm not gonna to say to you, I could run a marathon now, I could leave the door and I could run a marathon and I could ask people to support me for Operation Turtle Dove. No one cares, nobody cares. I could do a marathon today and tomorrow and I could ask people to support me. No one cares, everyone does a marathon. We had to make it something demonstrable, something that I do not know I can do. I don't know that when we fly to Spain in two weeks time, I'll be able to walk a marathon distance every day for 700 miles. So that is the attraction. I think the attraction's in the overall goal and the execution. So it's twofold. I think I might have gone off t on a tangent there. It's a good tangent though. <laughs> <laughs> so it's really, it's really interesting because the way that you've described it is like for you, the birds and then the supporting them and the helping them has become a real vehicle for you for personal change as well, oh, which, yeah. I, which I think I recognise because it's not comparable for sure. But, you know, when I came out with my first degree, I went and then volunteered at Minsmere and um, became a volunteer warden. And, I'm, you know, I'm quite an intellectual person, but I'm, I am still, and I was at the time even more so, I was crap with my hands, but... I taught myself or was taught by the people who I'm very grateful to, to do things like cut down a tree and disassemble and reassemble a chainsaw engine. And then when I went and lived and worked in the rainforest for a year, you know, I put myself through the challenge of spending 13, 14 hours solid walking through a rainforest, which when I started, I was like, I've got no idea if I can do this, you know? Um, I know other people can, but it's not something that I've ever done before. And it's, you know, it's not, it's not in the same league as walking three, 300 miles in a few days, but it's about pushing your own boundaries. And for me, nature and wildlife have become also the vehicle for doing that at times in my life. Uh, I couldn't agree more. I do disagree with one thing. Mm. I think you walking through that rainforest is comparable. It, is, it doesn't matter the end figure. It doesn't matter the distance. Mm -hmm. It's that personal challenge. And at a time, a 10K, I remember I did my first 10K. It was a personal challenge. And it was one that I did not know I could do. I literally left the front door here and I ran around the streets until my watch said 10 kilometers done. I had no idea I could do it. I couldn't really walk the next day, but you know, I did it. It was, uh, it was a journey in of itself. So yeah, you made a very good point with regards, like a personal journey. So we fundraised, we have fundraised for the RSPB for the last four years. Um, I'm always listening to heavy metal music. I'm always going to love the things that I've always loved. Yeah, like yeah, BMX. Yeah. yeah. But there's been a huge change, you know, in my, my, you know, I've lost two stone through the training and execution of the journeys. Um, my diet's changed. My relationship with, with 
alcohol and you know anything else has changed uh, dramatically so i can't say that i haven't gained a lot out of the experience you know i've i've gained an immeasurable amount um through dovestep and pursuing dovestep i mean i'm having a chat with you now i would not have even entertained that i simply wouldn't have entertained it a few years ago a why would i want to do that b what's the point c nobody cares what i've got to say but actually now i don't care if nobody cares what i have to say because i do have a wider message and that is dovestep Mm. it's not about me you know forget any of my insecurities or my desire or my willingness to do it it's very important that I talk to people and yeah get the plight of turtle doves get our ambitions for um, dovestep out there and available you know you have gifted me the opportunity to talk and it's another platform um, you know to spread the message and and my experience of dovestep and, and that's wonderful well, I think I've done sort of, I don't know, roughly 10 of these conversations now or something so far, and I hope to do a lot more. But I think what I've also found through them is that, A, even if no one's listening to them, I hope there are people listening to them, but I gain an awful lot through the conversations. And I think that's kind of the point is that what I gain, I hope other listeners gain, which is that it's not just about the issue or the cause or the work that someone's doing. It's also the story that they have to tell. And it's something that people can connect with and relate to. And I think you know, people who are right at the start of their career or their kind of enterprising project through to people who have been doing this for decades, they all have, you know, a really inspiring and interesting personal story behind it. And it's just really great getting to know not just the project and the facts, but also the person behind it. And I think that's, you know, I've kind of lost my thread now, but I think that's kind of the point. I I know what you mean. And I'd like to pick up on like another point within all that. So people would, some people would see me as someone who rides bikes. Some people would see me as a heavy metal fan. Some people would see me as someone who likes to do long runs and walks. I, all I consider myself to be is a bird watcher. Mm. You know, that's what I like to do. Um, you know, the, when we finish this conversation, I will go out bird watching. That's what I did this morning. If I'm running, I'm still looking for birds. I like to be 100% grounded to nature at really every opportunity. So I have now lost my thread also. Well, that, that, that brings me <laughs> on to a question which I wanted to ask, which is that um, in your Facebook statuses, you very often put hashtag only nature is real. Yeah. Which could seem like just a throwaway thing that you put in a Facebook status. But actually, I think it's quite significant could you expand upon hashtag only nature is real? Well, people have religions. People want to be part of... Everybody has their thing that's going to make them feel part of something uncomfortable. Everybody projects that thing. Um, I don't really need that because all I care about is nature. You know, um, I also call myself a naturalist on my Twitter bio. Uh, I'm not a natural in terms of like the academic, you know, learned use of the word, but I 100% believe in nature. You know, that is my outlook. You know, everything else is unnecessary. You know, it's unnecessary. It's a byproduct. It's a distraction. And the more you can minimize um, everything else and just enjoy nature, your experience of moving through nature 
I think you know the, that the better my life is going to be. Mm. And I know I can't speak for you. Maybe you'd rather go to McDonald's and then the cinema and only see the inside of buildings and vehicles, and then come back home and watch telly. That's fine. But I'd rather do the converse. And in indulging that over the last years and increasingly so, you know, I've had a much better quality of life. Personally, you know, I don't really own very much um, because I don't need it. You know, I don't really need anything apart from perhaps a rucksack uh, and then some, you know, indulgences like 1500 heavy metal CDs and some bird, <laughs> and some bird books. But apart from that, you know, and I could do without them. It, it doesn't matter. Everything I need is, is before me and, and will be there forever, you know, as long as we don't destroy the planet, you know, exponentially and there's nothing left. Mm-hmm. When I was really young, I think um, the feeling that I used to have and what used to excite me about wildlife and nature was looking at roads and buildings and cars and thinking, this is all kind of just a poor imitation of what's been here for thousands of years. That was probably wasn't in quite as sophisticated terms as that. But when I was really young, I think that's what I used to find exciting about it, thinking, you know, there's all this stuff that's been just kind of created itself. And then we've come along and we've tried to do some stuff that's nowhere near as cool. You know, it's a poor imitation, really. That's how I've always seen it. I I, I think it was interesting at the start of um, what you just said. You spoke about, you know, some people have religion. Um, I was thinking on the on the drive over here about the walks that you do for Dovestep um, and particularly significant that you're doing it in Spain this year and wondering if I could even potentially, you know, suggest the comparison of is, is it a little bit like a pilgrimage to the turtle dove? That, that is not an unreasonable analogy. So we're actually going to utilise a pilgrim route for some, some hundred miles, several hundred miles of this trip, the Via de la Plata. So we have to forge our own way to Seville and to the north, we have to, I think it's from around about a place called Zamora or Leon, the, the Spanish Leon, not the French one. <clears throat> from those points, we have to pick up our own uh, you know, footpaths and, and roadsides as required. But yeah, both on this coming journey and to a lesser extent on the last journey, we interacted with pilgrim routes and indeed, you know, pilgrims. In terms of the journeys being pilgrimage i don't know the exact definition of you know a, a pilgrimage but we are replicating increasingly so you know the magnitude route of turtle doves um, out of respect for the fact that they do that extensive migration twice a year you know we we walked the 300 miles in this country through the breeding range sort of nominally through the breeding range mm. but you're ignoring the fact that this is a highly migratory species yeah. Highly mandatory. So, in honouring that, you know, we had to do what we did. We had to do that um, seven hundred mile triathlon in twenty fifteen. You know, like the the sea kayak, the cycle, the walk, and we have to walk the whole of Spain um, if we want to continue fundraising for them in a, in a meaningful manner. It was, you know, became abundantly clear. I, I think, in terms of you know, my understanding of of a, of a pilgrimage is that you are making yourself perhaps a little bit more uncomfortable, but you're giving yourself the time to consider and think, maybe this is a pilgrimage for turtle doves. I'm comfortable with that. I'm comfortable with everything that entails. So I'm comfortable with the fact that 
Turtle doves are a farmland bird species. They're indicative of our farmland bird species in this country and the declines therein. They're also indicative of all those Afro-European migrants using that flyway. They're a flagship species and a, and, a, and a really robust, really strong flagship species to unpack a load of other things. Um, I, and and I'm, I couldn't be happy with that species. But yeah, we've, point, we've pointed to the fact that I've personally got a lot out of this, the pursuit of Dove Step and the experience of Dove Step. Maybe it's a pilgrimage, maybe it's a pilgrimage, maybe it's my personal growth, as well as a travel effort, as well as everything else. I don't really know because I haven't perhaps had time to think about it. Well, I, I might be corrected on this, but I think the word pilgrimage comes from the French word pèlerin, which comes, which is the same root for the word peregrine. And it goes back to the Latin word for wandering. So essentially at its heart, it's all about movement. Obviously it's taken on significant uh, religious kind of uh, meaning since then and it's usually a religious pilgrimage that you go on but linguistically it's simply about movement which I've, you know I think we've covered is is what is central to a lot of your life and is central certainly to Dovestep is that in different ways you are moving in the same way that they do in, in that case it's a pilgrimage for turtle doves and I'm you know I'm, I'm really happy with that you know, to the point where maybe I'd even use that in written written output in the future. Well, feel welcome to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you've gifted me that one, yeah. Um, so for, for people who might not know, could you do Dove Step 101? What, what is it? Why turtle doves? What's special about turtle doves to you? How many times have you done it before and what are you doing this year? <clears throat> so Dove Step, I guess, has evolved and changed over the course of, of the last few years. It has three aims. Primarily, awareness raising for turtle doves, fundraising for turtle doves, and obviously endurance. So, I cannot give £10,000 to the RSPB, but I can hopefully uh, initiate that kind of uh, you know, amount of money through basically pushing myself, enduring. And let's face it, you know, people like it when you suffer. If you suffer, if people think you might fail, that's when they give they give money. So, um, you know this this interview, public speaking engagements uh, that I fulfil, magazine articles, any output possible is all part of that wider objective of uh, awareness raising. You know, obviously we we've done the first two journeys, and we're about to do the third. Uh, two weeks today we start. To me, it's all one objective. I, I don't just see the... I, I realise very quickly that, yeah, we could do the walk. Um, we could do the event itself. But that would be about 10%. You know, 10% of the effort. I would be wasting a wealth of, of other opportunity. So at that point, you know, was, I, I held myself accountable to fulfil the other elements. So, yeah, I had to learn to write improve my I could write you know I could write. <laughs> you know I had to improve my written work um improve my uh public speaking you know we we gave the first dust step talks on the actual first dust step journey and we gave talks at Frampton Marsh RSPB and Saltholm RSPB so the first the one was within the UK yeah we left RSPB Lake and Heath Fen mm-hmm. 
we walked um, basically along the uh, the little and great ooze up to the wash there and then all the way through Lincolnshire uh, over the Humber Bridge through all the Yorkshires and then up into Teesside and we finished at RSPB Sold Home in the North East you know the talks I gave in the middle of all that you know with my feet literally falling to pieces and uh, under considerable duress they were probably terrible I mean they were probably absolutely dire but they're a starting point and I did I knew that in my heart of hearts I knew I wasn't going to be a good public speaker off the bat and nor should I have been but that's just one of the aspects that I realised is it was just as important as doing and successfully completing the journeys if not more important was to if you like you know to backfill and to fulfil that role um, as part of Dovestep so that's why I'm quite insistent that it is three pronged um, endurance fundraising and, and awareness raising as well mm-hmm. um, so why why the turtle dove and why not just scientifically but also why did you pick turtle doves why are they important to you so I mean it is well 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 publicised you know the red listed really you know like absolutely crap in the bed in, in a UK, UK context not much better in a European context but I touched upon it before I consider them a flagship species. I consider them a flagship for our farmland birds and for all those summer migrants that we receive. You know, this is a bird that spends two thirds of its time in Africa, yet it still has this huge (coughs) folklore and attachment for us in Britain. So it it, it made sense. You know, I, I don't think I was very calculated when I chose turtle doves. I just like turtle doves. It was that simple. And I think that's fine. I don't think yeah, yeah. you know. I don't think you need to have a deep backstory. And I remember when I saw my first birds um, with my father at Hurwithburn. I think I remember that. I don't know how much of that is like you know one of these really young implanted memories that you you sort of embellish with time. I don't know, but my dad assures me that's where I saw my first um, turtle doves. But for whatever reason, it, it may simply have been that they were a bird that I'd I seen I saw and enjoyed. I knew I wanted to support Operation Turtle Dove from its inception. Mm. You know, I knew I wanted to do that, and would continue to do so. Um, and what um, what's the money going towards that you raised, for example? Yeah, so I, I should just touch upon. So we had the first journey, that three hundred mile walk in England, yep. 2014. 2015, We did our our take on a triathlon. Um, you know, respecting the fact that they are highly migratory, we did a sea kayak, um, you know, the ch- channel distance sea kayak. I was going to say, it wasn't just a triathlon, you kayaked to the channel, right? Yeah, well, we weren't <laughs> allowed over, straight over the channel. Right. Um, because of the heightened immigration issues, we had to stay within British waters. Right. Um, so Port of Cherbourg wouldn't let us into French waters. Mm-hmm. We could have rebel run it, aside from the fact that we knew we wanted to be on French soil, you know, for the next two weeks, and we were wholly um, time limited with our you know annual leave so yeah we did a we bowed out into you know the channel kept completely within British waters but did over channel distance at sea came back into Shotley Marina in Suffolk immediately got um, in the vehicle my friend Ed who had steered my bikes in the car got the ferry across um, Dover to Calais got three hours sleep 
and then cycled 113 miles the first day and comparable miles you know thereafter to join Calais to Bordeaux and, and then walked down to uh, towards the Spanish border towards Bayonne and I finished in Bayonne you know with the Pyrenees that natural border between France and Spain uh, in front of us so that was the second journey for the first journey um, nine hectares of the fundraising was used by Operation Turtle Dove uh, and you know their specific income stream within the RSPB um, to facilitate nine hectares of turtle dove friendly habitat in the eastern region, and that you know it was very it was very well timed because it was um, effectively the end of almost between agri environmental uh, schemes, so it gave the RSPB a purse. Um, with which to you know facilitate uh, landowners who are willing, farmers who are willing to have that on their land. Right. Um, the second journey, so the twenty fifteen, uh, you know, our take on a triathlon, that allowed for um, part funding of uh, research on the wintering grounds. So I said before, you know, two thirds of the year for turtle is on the wintering grounds, and there was a huge knowledge gap. And it probably still is quite a knowledge gap in the issues affecting turtle doves on the wintering grounds. So the RSPB have had scientists down in, in Senegal, Mali, you know, sub-Saharan Africa, the last two wintering periods. Uh, yeah, I think so. I think I might... I know Nigel Butcher at RSPB, who's okay. kind of their gadget man, who I think went out for some of the kind of misnetting work they were doing. Okay, there, so. yeah. And, and John, John Malord's yeah. been instrumental in... Yeah. Uh, RSPB scientist, uh, instrumental in a lot of that work. Yeah. So in part... Um, I'm not suggesting for one second that the money's raised, funded at all, but it it was very rewarding that, you know, there was a tangible, a delivered and an applied use of funds mm. to the benefit of, of Turtle Doves from Dove Step 1 and 2, and that makes it very, very easy to continue. You know, for, for me personally, um, that is a huge amount of motivation. So was there one last year? Oh, look at that. <laughs> <laughs> or you've yeah. been building no, up to no, this no, year. No, 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 you're, you're quite right. We uh, we didn't do anything last year in terms of a journey. Right, it sounds like you've got plenty to prep for for what is it? Two weeks. Yeah. Time. So, yeah. No, you're quite right. It's it's a gap in uh, in the dove steps. Um, there's a number of reasons for that. So, dove step is a big effort. Yeah. Uh, and it's one that, in our cases, you know, we self fund everything. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, never made a penny out of. Of Dove Step, yeah. all the monies go on the fundraising totals. Yeah. So, for example, we're nearly up to a thousand pounds raised um, already on the Dove Step Three just giving, and that's because aside from putting some fuel in my uh, partner's car, I take the fee for any public speaking engagement, and I take any money raised from pin badge sales, beer sales, donations, and I just put it straight on the Just Giving page. Um, so that's our approach to fundraising. But it's quite an involved effort and we have to appease, you know, our loved ones and family at home, our employer. And um, I don't know whether it's related to Dovestep, but in the last uh, 18 months, there's been two divorces and one uh, long-term relationship breakup within the Dovestep camp. I also changed jobs. So we could have done one last year, but I knew for that, you know, that, that myriad of reasons, yeah. we wouldn't be able to fulfill it um, in a way that I can... I certainly can now do it. You know, I, I can, I prepared for this for 18 months. 
Um, you know, I've literally lived every day in the back of my mind. I thought, what can I do today to better prepare or further my preparation or make Dovestep 3 the best it can be? Mm. That's been a constant. And so, yeah, we did, we did do a lot of stuff last year. Um, we didn't deliver, uh, you know, the third journey. But uh, you're not the first person to point that out. No, I think, no, just to, just to pause on that for a moment, I think that, you know, I've, over the past decade or so, I've done a lot of stuff in my spare time on top of my day job. So I've been involved in a lot of youth climate work, done a lot of youth wildlife work. And I think the number one thing that I've learned is that self-care is the first thing you need to do, like making sure that you are in the space and the place to be able to do those things you know, is what facilitates them. Otherwise you end up with people going through, th- you know, going through things like you mentioned or going through, you know, just personal burnout. So I think, you know, prep, personal prep as much as anything is, is crucial. I, I, I know, I mean, so last year alone, um, we, we went to the Cairngorm, uh, we spent three days, um, you know, up on that range, doing Monroe's, camping, moving, two trips over to Snowdonia, uh, messing around the Welsh 3000s. I um, ran 58 miles in one weekend. I did three three races. I did like a five miler on the Friday, and then a marathon Saturday, a marathon Sunday. Did my first 50 kilometer running race. And, you know, various other, you know, long distance races. And, and just saw, Rob and me just saw how far we could walk one day and, and walked 34 miles. And it could have kept going, we're fine. But everything, in the back of my mind, everything was, it's okay if this goes hideously wrong. Mm. It's just conditioning. It's just practice. And it's all, if, if you like, it's investment in um, this year, you know. I, I'm not like to, you know, I've, I've trained a lot. Maybe I've overtrained, my feet hurt every morning I wake up. Um, you know, I've had sort of several injuries over the course of the last 12 months. But on balance, I think I've never been in my entire life so in such a good position to execute this journey. Um, I've grant, mentally, you know, granite, absolutely mentally strong and resolute. But one thing I've used this time to do is try and narrow that gap, which by my own omission was, was a great gap between fitness and mental uh, resolve. So I, I'm not saying I'm like an athlete and the fittest person in the world, but I'm a lot closer to where I need to be uh, to execute the journey now. Would you say the mental is as important as the physical? Oh, it's more important. More important. You could, I could do it. You could literally do it on spec tomorrow. Mm. Anybody, you could do it. Anybody could do it. But you would suffer a lot. Mm. So all I'm looking to do is reduce that suffering not necessarily for self-preservation, but because a lot of people have supported our effort and I don't want to fail. You know, the only way that um, I'll fail is if I'm medically in a situation whereby I can't continue. Yeah. Any amount of discomfort um, or within reason medical issue will not stop me. It would only be something absolutely catastrophic. So the responsibility is on myself and my teammates to reduce that uh, level of issue. You know, we've, we've, we've taken money already. People have supported our fundraising effort. The least we can do is give them good value for that money uh, and that, that belief in us, you know, their support for Dove Step and Operation Turtle Dove. So specifically, what will you be doing this year? 
What's the challenge? Yeah, we're going to cover on foot Spain from south to north. Two weeks today we fly into Seville. Then two weeks tomorrow we start on Tarifa Beach and we walk north. We've given ourselves 30 days in which to do it and hopefully we'll reduce upon that. But we'll walk north um, yeah, and cover 700 miles, the whole of Spain, and uh, yeah, end up at Gijon, which is due west of Santander on the northern coast of Spain. And uh, yeah, that would be certainly our biggest challenge to date. Um, and there's a, a longer distance, a longer time, more potential for things to go wrong. Um, it, it, every bit a challenge. You know, it's every bit the challenge that we want it to be. Superly intimidating because there is that real possibility of failure uh, at almost any moment. You know, even in the last two months, less, maybe like six weeks, I got knocked off my mountain bike and I got bitten by a dog. You know, I just want to get to the start line. <laughs> you know, we're now two weeks out. I, you know, I need to keep training to a point. I'm going to taper um, from a week today. Yeah. But yeah, getting so close and after so much sort of leading. That now I'm, I just don't know whether to just stay in bed or to keep walking and running. I don't know what to do. <laughs> just wrap yourself in cotton. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so how many of you will there be doing it? So myself, Robert Yaxley, uh, who so Rob did the uh, the whole of the first journey, the three hundred mile walk, and he did the walking leg of the uh, the you know the French leg. Our, our take on a triathlon. So Rob will be there for at least. Uh, Pardon me, uh, sort of about two thirds of this journey. You know, he he's got family commitments in his own business, so he will do. Um, I think the first week or two, go back home, take care of everything needs to, and then come back for the last um, week or so. So there'll be. I have a solo element in the middle. Um, so there's two walking uh, participants, uh, Rob and myself, and then for the first six days, our good friend Sven Ware will be driving a support vehicle mm-hmm. and then he, he will leave just after Seville and then for sort of the last up to two weeks another really good close friend of ours Malcolm Fairley will uh, he's actually going to drive down from Suffolk and uh, you know he'll bird watch during the sort of uh, you know 10 hours we're out walking but otherwise you know he'll, he'll be our support he'll be able to fetch any food water or medical supplies we need and we just have that comfort, that uh, safety net, if you like, that we can put heavy items uh, in the vehicle that day if we need to. We know that we've got food and water um, at our predetermined finish line. And if the worst came to the worst, we could sleep in the car. You know, we're not going to be um, just out in the open, which wouldn't be a problem. Mm-hmm. But we've made uh, a decision to travel really fast and light. So we, we are taking a sleeping and beer fee bag, but no tent. So, um, yeah, and that's been facilitated in no small part by the fact that we've got these support drivers. So, yeah, you know, and that's another thing. It's taken time to get this amount of provision in place. It's just another reason why it's good to have that that breathing space in what, you know, was a turbulent 18 months or so for uh, different team members. Um, And you say you've got a solo bit in the middle, but how, for the other bits, how important is having... The company of someone who you get on with <laughs> to get you through it. Well, I mean, you met Rob earlier, um, so it's not the best conversation, um, but it's conversation of sorts. 
Um, we've done a lot together. We've been up through, uh, well, both my trips to the Arctic. I've been with Rob um, over in India. So like montane rainforest, lowland jungle, um, foothills of the Himalayas. You know, we are used to being in close proximity. Uh, we work around each other. You know, I, I'm ruthlessly organized and efficient. He's uh, very messy, <laughs> uh, but it works. You know, everything works together. And we, I've only seen him get, get angry once in my entire life. And that was on doorstep two. And one evening on the walking leg, he became just that little bit too hungry. Oh, he got hungry. He got hungry. <laughs> and it was hilarious. <laughs> it was absolutely hilarious, you know. Um, because I'd never seen it, it, it was really funny. And I probably didn't help matters by finding it really funny. But yeah, so that's just an idea, you know. We, we don't clash. We, um, we just, we've, it's very um, amicable. You know, we, we, we've been in very bad situations. Um, you know, really... I hesitate, not necessarily life-threatening, but probably some quite awkward situations, you know, um, in foreign countries with perhaps not the most uh, friendly of people. But we've always resolved and we've always extracted ourselves from any issue. Um, maybe because we were naive to the severity of the situation, but also because we've just got a nice, calm, um, you know, collected relationship between us and approach to most things. And, you know, any fiery element in my attitude would be otherwise calmed by him and, and vice versa, you know, on, on the time where he became hangry and I had to escort him to a pizzeria. <laughs> um, uh, I'm, I'm interested in two elements of, of what the walk will be like and what the previous ones have been like. So first, um, you expected to see lots of great wildlife. And then second, on the previous journeys that you've done, um, you said you met people who are actually using the pilgrimage routes as pilgrimage routes. What have the reactions of people who you've met on the way been to what you're doing? So, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, I've not spent any time in the Spanish interior. I stand to see a lot of, of new wildlife. And if you're going to experience a country, well, what a way to do it. You know, three miles per hour, moving through that country, um, through times a day, in that steady and concerted manner. You know, do it once, do it properly. That you know, that is going to be wonderful, and I, I really can't wait. In respect to the pilgrims, I'll be honest. Um, we have met them, and there's been roadside chats. Um, only only one lady who was actually a walking pilgrim. The others tend to be cyclists. Right. Um, so, for example, a gent who'd come from Germany that we bumped into uh, in the south of France. So, really, it's assumed that you are all pilgrims. That's the tone of the conversation. And we don't really go into the fact that, well, we're actually doing it for turtle doves. And there's a very good function, you know, there's, there's a good reason for that, really. And, and that is that I don't know how appropriate it is that we're going to use the, the pilgrim infrastructure. I'm sure it's fine, you know, these are God-faring Christian religious people. I would hope that they would respect the fact that our pilgrimage, as we discussed, is for our own reasons. Mm. But um, we're not going to be branded, there's going to be no insignia to say that we are anything other than pilgrims when we are on those sections of the walks. Yeah. Our objective is to is singular. We want to be as inconspicuous as possible um, and execute those daily miles with as least issue as possible. Yeah. So whilst it might seem counterintuitive to not announce that, you know, on the ground, it's to good cause. You know, I don't want to chat anybody i don't want to speak to them if i speak to you for five minutes i've not walked 
for five minutes. Mm. You know, we'll be very focused in that respect when we get on the ground. So, um, yeah, I hope that doesn't come across as negative. No, I think I can understand yeah. that, you know, you want to focus on what you've got to get done when you're doing something so extreme, you know, you need, you need all your mental and physical energy for that. I think that makes sense. Um, uh, only in respect of the finish line for that day. Yeah. So, you know, when we bank those miles, yeah. if we've banked our daily mileage of, of 25 plus, then I'm relaxed, you know, then I'm happy. Job done, let's eat, let's stretch, let's sleep, and then do it again. But I entertain all that kind of conversation and, and output and, you know, I make a, a noise online, on the social media. But yeah, you, you have to be single-minded, otherwise you just, um, there's an inescapable reality that you need to walk 25 to 35 miles that day. Mm-hmm. And every moment you're chatting or uh, procrastinating or not getting out of bed, you're not helping. You know, and that's the way it feels, and, and there is that daily pressure. Um, I think I just want to finish by asking um, if you know if there are people sitting at home right now, particularly young people, I suppose, who are finding it difficult to get into a career in conservation because a lot of young people do these days, or people of any age really, but who are thinking, I want to do something, and they're considering starting up something that's not a job or an employment role, but just starting up their own thing, their own project to try and make a difference, like you have in, in a fairly incredible way, what advice would you have for them? Do it. Just do it. Put your trainers on, walk out the front door, and whatever it is you wish to do, just do it. So I wanted to do some writing. I did the writing. I wanted to do some walking. I started walking, running. You will be rubbish at it. You're not going to make, you know, you're not going to impress anyone. You're not going to be a hero. It's not the X factor. There's no quick win. Anything worth doing takes years and years and you'll fail and you'll fail repeatedly and people will say no and they will say no repeatedly. But just keep doing it. If it's what you want to do, keep doing it. That's all I've done is keep doing exactly what I wanted to do. You know, and, and for months and months, there's no fanfare. It's not about reward. It's just because this is what I would like to do. Yeah, there's these, these peaks and troughs of um, you know, reward in respect of the um, fundraising going up and uh, you know, any personal accolade. But 95% of the time, I'm just doing what I wish to do because I wish to do it. It's easy to get lured into, um, you know, false um, accolade with the social media-like um, society that we live in. But as long as you're happy doing what you're doing, that is your primary goal. Anything else is secondary. Any other reward is secondary. Just make sure you're happy and pursue exactly what it is you wish to do. And that'll change. You might start off on one path and it'll incorporate everything else, you know. I want to do these endurance events for Turtle Doves and for myself and they've led on to doing things like this interview, writing for magazines, whatever else it's led to, you know, radio interview, pieces for TV, that's fine. But at the core of it all, I'm just happy doing what I'm doing and been able to facilitate Operation Turtle Dove in a way that my own wallet and own influence just simply cannot do without these larger journeys and efforts um and 
I wouldn't normally sort of do plugs, but in this case, how can people support Dovestep? Yeah, so have a look at the uh, Dovestep 3 website. Just Google Dovestep 3. Um, if not via the Google, I think it would be on the first page, the Just Giving page. But from the, uh, the Dovestep 3 website, there's also a link to the, the Just Giving uh, site. You know, wait and see how we got on. Don't, don't take our word for it. Um, yeah, you don't have to give money unless you feel totally inspired to do so. But I can tell you that I fully hope to inspire you, really 100%. And I will do everything I can to draw that line from Tarifa to Gijon in the north. Uh, yeah, 100%. And can people follow your progress on that website, yeah? Yeah, it's, it's every evening we're able um, to get on, on the Wi-Fi, we'll upload the route that we have. And that, that's an important point. So the Guinness World Records, uh, as an organisation, they do not ratify point-to-point uh, journeys until such time as they are uh, sufficiently popular. So, for example, Land's End to John O'Groats, uh, Swimming the Channel, you know, these are established and popularised routes. So they, they, they will not ratify this as a world record, Dove Step 3. That's fine. I'm still going to evidence it um, as if it is a world record. So to that, to that aim, you know, to that um, objective, you know, hopefully upload the route every day. So world record in terms of doing it in the fastest time? I believe so, yeah. The right. fastest crossing of Spain from south to north. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I'm not saying for one second that you couldn't go and get an ultra runner tomorrow that would run it quicker than we're going to walk it probably in half the time, a quarter of the time. But um, I did approach the Guinness World Records people on that basis, just out of interest, but but they won't ratify it. But anyway, as soon as we're on Wi-Fi, we'll upload our daily mileage and the route. We'll also do a a little blog post, you know, keeping everyone up to date in in progress, hopefully what birds were seen. Um, Yeah, just, just try and keep people as much a part of the journey as possible, you know, the very people that supported our fundraising and support us all along. Um, it's, the only gap um, would be we didn't have access to Wi-Fi, mm. um, but otherwise, yeah, we'll, we'll keep you updated and, and write some comments. Uh, we'll read them as much as we're able. And uh, yeah, Rob, Rob will be there, you know, for the ladies for an amount of time. So it should be a should be a good good trip. Um, is there anything else you want to say, or anything we haven't covered? No, just, just thank you to yourself uh, and everyone else for their interest in Dovestep and thank you very much for the opportunity to talk. Cool. Awesome. That was fantastic. fantastic.